All right. Good evening, everyone. We're going to start with a smile check, all right? We do it every night. Don't be uncomfortable. I'm looking. Smiles, teeth, yes. Smiles, yes. Everybody's okay? Everybody's okay? Praise the Lord. You've made it through another week. It's good to see all of your faces. It is only by the grace of God and the mercies of God that we've been allowed to come into his house of worship, especially with the troubles that are happening in our present world. What do you say? So before we begin, because I'm not smart enough or intelligent enough to communicate the realities of the gospel to you, and I need a lot of help, if you don't mind, if we could pray together and ask God for his spirit. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your tender regard. We thank you for this privilege of freedom that we have now to open our Bibles and to seek to understand your mind. Father, tonight this subject is a deep one, and I pray for clarity of thought and feeling that reflects your own. And we pray this not because we are worthy, but because your dear son is, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. All right, I need one of these. So tonight, I told you, if you weren't here last night or the night before, I told you that tonight's going to be a very important night. It's not going to be like a regular sermon. You'll see that I actually gave you a handout tonight. I normally don't do that because you're going to be required to think. Every night you should think. Every time we study, you should be thinkers. But we're going to be delving deeply into the Word of God, and you are going to have to ask God's Spirit to open your mind. Now, the subject that I'm going to share with you, I teach it in my classes. When I teach the students, I always go over this subject. I've really not done it in this type of setting. So by God's grace, I don't give you too much information that you just go to sleep. <laughs> but at the same time, I want to give you enough information that we can follow along and understand what God is trying to do in these last hours. I consider this prophecy, it's a two-part prophecy, uh, a two-part presentation. Uh, this is part one, and part two will be a couple of days later. But part one, I want to establish this point, because if we get this point, it's one of these prophecies where if you understand it, you'll know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, point blank, period. That It will be no, no question in that regard. So before we begin, uh, I want you to open your Bibles. Oh, I want to watch this video with you. All right, want to make sure the sound's working. If it's not working, I'll bring the microphone to it. I'm going to share a series of several videos with you. I want you to listen to what each one said. Recognizing the importance of the Temple Mount to peoples of all three monotheistic faiths, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, Israel reaffirms its commitment to upholding unchanged the status quo on the Temple Mount, in word and in practice. As we have said many times, Israel has no intention to divide the Temple Mount, and we completely reject any attempt to suggest otherwise. We respect the importance of the special role of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, as reflected in the 1994 peace treaty between Jordan and Israel, and the historical role of King Abdullah II. Israel will continue to enforce its long-standing policy. Muslims pray on the Temple Mount, non-Muslims visit the Temple Mount. 
Israel believes that those who visit or worship on the Temple Mount must be allowed to do so in peace, free from violence, from threats, from intimidation, and from provocations. We will continue to ensure access to the Temple Mount for peaceful worshipers and visitors while maintaining public order and security. We welcome increased coordination between the Israeli authorities and the Jordanian Waqf, including to ensure that visitors and worshipers demonstrate restraint and respect for the sanctity of the area, and all this in accordance with the respective responsibilities of the Israeli authorities and the Jordanian Waqf. We support the call for the immediate restoration of calm and for all the appropriate steps to be taken to ensure that violence ceases, that provocative actions are avoided, and that the situation returns to normalcy in a way that promotes the prospects for peace. We look forward to working cooperatively to lower tensions, stop incitement, and discourage violence. All right, so that's the prime minister, or was, I still, I don't know if he still is. The other day I was paying attention, they were having a, a vote and they weren't sure exactly who won. However, this is in 2015. He's stating that Israel, the Temple Mount, where they have the Dome of the Rock and where everybody believes that, that the Temple was, he's stating that this place should be a place of peace. And everybody's invited to this place of peace to worship their God. Now, there's a reason why I'm sharing that with you. I want to share this video with you next. Recognize. Notice this one. Welcome back. The Temple Mount is the site of the first and second Jewish temples. But for hundreds of years, it's been occupied by Muslim shrines. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Golden Dome of the Rock now sit on the site. But some Jewish people want to build a third Jewish temple. CBN correspondent Julie Stahl spoke with expert Liz Healy about that vision and its challenges. Liz Healy, welcome to Jerusalem Dateline. Thank you, it's good to be here. Yeah, and we're here on the Mount of Olives with lots of tourists. Mm -hmm. And we're overlooking the Temple Mount mm -hmm. with the Golden Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What's the significance of the Temple Mount to Muslims? Um, for Muslims, it's the third holiest site in their religion. Um, but interestingly enough, it's not the Dome of the Rock, which is the most prominent site. It's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What's the significance of the Temple Mount to the Jewish people? In Jewish tradition, this is where um, Adam was created. It was also the place after the flood that Noah um, brought an offering to the Lord. We know that this is the place where Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed. Also the place where David bought the threshing floor where he said he wouldn't make an offering to God that cost him nothing. And it's the site of the first and second temples. It was believed by most also the place for the third temple where it will be built. It's such a holy site to so many people. Why is it so controversial? I think that's the, that's the exact purpose, because it's so holy. And um, all the monotheistic religions, Christian, Jews, and Muslims, all feel like this is their place of worship. And so it's very controversial of who's going to actually end up on this mount. Do you think the three religions could share the, the Temple Mount? Um, personally, I don't, but there is a huge movement about coexisting on the Temple Mount. And, and even recently, within the last two weeks, I know of a, a meeting between Christians and Muslims and Jews who all are talking about um, what are the possibilities and, and how could they establish both a temple and a mosque um, on the Temple Mount. What kind of plans are being made to, to build a third temple? There are actually quite a few, and um, depending on the group that you talk to, um, different architectural designs have been made. So one group is doing a design more like Herod's Temple, 
And it would be on the Temple Mount, and I don't believe that they would have uh, a mosque that, that would be there. Um, there are other groups that are more um, focused on the design that's given in Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, which is the next stru structure in Scripture that God said to build the Temple in this way. And then even some archaeological research has been done recently that would say that the, the Holy of Holies is not under the Dome of the Rock, which is the most common assumption, but a little bit to the north, and that's why the kind of the coexist movement is moving forward is because it's possible that they could be right next to each other on the Temple Mount. Where in the Bible does it talk about building a temple, a third temple? Um, there's several references and um, somewhat depends on interpretation, but we would begin in the book of Daniel where it talks about the um, abomination of desolation. And we know that's happened once, but it talks of a future time where the sacrifices will again be taken away. So a temple would have to exist for the sacrifices to be done. Um, we also see it listed in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 in 2 Thessalonians that all make a reference to um, a false messiah setting himself up in a temple and declaring himself as God or removing the sacrifices. We also see in the book of Revelation, um, John is told to measure the temple measurements and so there has to be a physical temple for him to be able to measure it. So what preparations are actually being made um, right now to build the, the third temple? There are actually quite a few and it just um, shows that God is giving the Jewish people kind of signs or an expectation that it's time for the soon coming Messiah. But um, there is a group specifically that has uh, reestablished the Levitical priesthood. They just started a school uh, a few months ago and they have a registry for those who are from the Levitical line um, that they could come and be trained and be ready to do the service in the temple. Um, they've also started a red heifer farm. Um, the Temple Institute did with an Israeli farmer and that was again with ritual purity that they need to have a, a a uh, red heifer that meets uh, Jewish law and has been supervised and doesn't have any white hairs. It's completely red heifer to be able to be burned, mixed with white er, running water, and then um, used to make everybody ritually pure to be able to go into the temple. I mean, right now, Jewish people just going on the Temple Mount can create a riot sometimes. So can you envision a scenario where, where they would allow the temple to be built? Um, No. Um, a lot of the um, scholars that I've spoken to uh, talk about how the building of this next temple is really going to bring peace to Israel and to bring safety from all her, her enemies. And so in that way I can see that um, any maybe leader that would be raised up or somebody that would be able to bring the nations together, especially those who might align with Israel, that there might be some agreement that, that, that the temple could exist there and this person could be set up in the temple. What we know is that's probably going to be a false messiah because as we read in the book of Daniel that there's a false messiah that's going to uh, make a peace agreement and so that's the, the potential is that something would be built for the false messiah to set himself up. Okay, thank you very much for joining us on Jerusalem Dayline. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Interesting, huh? I thought, I thought it was interesting when they asked her, do you think that they'd be able to coexist? There was an awkward pause. She thought for a long time. Now, I, again, when we study tonight, I'm going to be laying a foundation. So you by yourself, as we study, you're going to be able to say yay or nay to some of the things that she was stating. But I want you to, again, there's one more thing I want you to watch. I believe there's one more thing I want you to watch here. Yes, this is it. Hard to 
hardline religious group Matei Irgune Hamigdash, or headquarters of the temple organizations, has a mission to rebuild a Jewish house of worship on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Currently home to Al-Aqsa Mosque, Islam's third holiest site, the location has been long contested between the two religions. The Jewish group, however, maintains that the location is key for fulfilling biblical prophecies. It is a new start of the redemption. And we hope that next year or even before, we'll be, we will be on the Temple Mount. The law will come from here. All the 70 nations, they will have a seat in the court and the law will be the law of the Bible. On a rainy day before Passover, the organization gathers on a rooftop in the old city to carry out a controversial practice, ritual sacrifice. Under the watch of high security, the sheep is brought to a secluded area. Religious followers continue to make final preparations. We're on a, another milestone in the process of the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. Young men playing the role of priests dress in biblical-looking clothes. It's now time to begin. Everyone gathers to pray as the priests reenact ancient traditions from the Bible. The event that takes place here is not an event in itself. It's a practice. It's a training. And uh, people are coming here to learn to understand. Out of the eye of the public, the sheep is slaughtered. Its blood is brought out for ritual use. And maybe this year, in four days later, the representative of the groups of the Israelites will come with their lamb to the yards of their temple. We built a kosher altar and start all the ritual of uh, Pesach lambs. To complete the sacrifice, the lamb is skinned and displayed for the group. The body is cooked to be eaten later that night. Sorry about the music. All right. If you were sleeping, you are now awake. Amen. So a couple of things. First and foremost, this saddens me. To know that people still believe they have to sacrifice a lamb. John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Well, somehow, some way, they have this misnomer in their mind that they must do this. And there's also a misnomer even amongst Christianity with an understanding of this temple. Now, here we have an article from Newsweek. Will Trump hasten the arrival of the Messiah? Jews and evangelicals think so. Now, don't laugh now. They, they, are, they are sincere. This is a sincere belief. There is also this in the same article which says, in the wake of President Donald Trump's controversial decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, some Jewish activists argued that the U.S. president was being guided by God to restore Jewish control over sacred sites. Activists lobbying for the construction of a Jewish temple in Jerusalem said Trump was playing a similar role to the Persian emperor Cyrus the Great who allowed the Jews to return to Israel from exile. You guys, you guys paying attention? This is interesting. Pay attention. This is interesting. 
It says, Jews also praised Cyrus for helping them build the second Jewish temple in the same place where the first had been destroyed. Judaism's first temple stood from, now get these dates in your mind, stood from 957 B.C., that's Solomon's temple, to around 586 B.C. And its second temple stood from around 515 B.C. to 70 A.D., according to the Hebrew Bible. So this this article is interesting, and again, I just want to highlight this. They are actively seeking to build a third temple. Now, you know that every instrument, whether it was the menorah lamp, whether it was the altar of sacrifice, whether it was the laver, all those instruments have been rebuilt already. They even have the stones, some of the stones ready for the establishment of this new temple. Right now, they're just trying to figure out where to put the temple. So... Some people believe it's under the Dome of the Rock, but more recent archaeologists have found that the temple was actually somewhere else. And they're trying to convince the local Orthodox persons to say, hey, forget about the Dome of the Rock. This is where the temple actually was. Again, I found it interesting. Now, if you don't know your Bible or if you're just going by what you learned in a school somewhere, you may be tricked in these last days. I want to show this to you. You've probably seen this before. This was the coin that they made. Um, this has the face of Trump on it and the face of Cyrus. This, was, this is called the temple money, a special coin made for the temple with the ones that would be delivered. In the Bible, there was a silver coin demonstrated as uh, a means of salvation, a means of sacrifice uh, for the people of God. So they made this coin, thankful that Donald Trump recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So again, I share these things with you for information to set the stage for our study. You see, we have not opened the Bible yet. And you know me, we don't, we don't do that here. We open our Bibles. We want to study the Bible. So you have your Bible. I want you, and I'm not going to show this video. I, I'm, I want you to, I want you to go with me to the book of Daniel. We're going to the book of Daniel. And in fact, if you were to look up, there's a special curse um, by some of the rabbis on Daniel chapter 9, particularly, uh, because Daniel 9 actually identifies the Messiah and the time of his arrival. So in Daniel chapter 9, and I want to begin at verse number 1, Daniel 9 Actually, I want to begin at verse 24. Daniel 9 and verse 24. And what we're going to do, because I'm in the teaching mode, we're going to go through 24 to 27. Just going to read it through one time, and then I'm going to go back in time, okay? So Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the Bible says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come 
shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abomination he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, if we're going to understand the third temple, then we must understand the first and second. What do you say? So we can't get to the third without understanding the first and second. So the first temple, I'm just going to tell you and then I'm going to show you. The first temple is Solomon's temple. And the second temple technically is Zerubbabel's temple, but they call it Herod's temple. And the reason why they do that is because Herod is the one that helped finish it off. He helped complete it. Now we're going to look at both these temples and we're going to make some observations. In order to do that, you're going to have to be thinkers, and you're going to have to stay with me as we do it. I want you to go back to the book of Daniel. I want you to look at chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says. In Daniel chapter 1, and beginning at verse 1, and we're being students of the word now, so you're going to have to look at your Bible. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and what's it say, my friends? Besieged it. And the Lord God, I mean, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with the part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now, I read this many years ago. It had to be like 2010. I read this as if I were for the first time, and I read it, and I was concerned. Do you know why I was concerned? Because verse 2 says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim is the king of God's people, and the Lord is taking God's people and putting them under the rulership of a pagan king. Are you following the idea? Now, whenever I see something like that, it causes me concern because my mind is saying, why would God allow a pagan king to dominate his chosen people? And as my mind began to ask this question, it went back to the story in 2 Chronicles. Go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And I want to start reading at verse number 1. Again, we're doing some observation. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, and beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. So in verse 1, what is happening with Solomon's temple in this verse? What's happened? It's finished. The work is done. It's complete. Everybody follow that? Now watch what happens. Jump down to verse number 13 and verse number 14. The Bible says, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound, 
to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord when they lifted up their voice with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endure forever, that then the house was filled with what, my friends? Was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Now watch verse 14. So that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, before I, I don't want to, let me, let me just pause for a second. I didn't want to do that. I'm going to put this down for a second. I want you to think. We're thinking. So the, the temple is finished. Everything is complete. Everything has its proper place. All the priests and ministers are there, and they're gathered, and they're making one sound, and they are in one accord. And God blesses this unity with the manifestation of his presence. I wonder if we've seen anything like that in the New Testament. You guys remember what we studied? Last Sunday, we're talking about Acts chapter 2. All the people of God were in one place, and they were in one accord, and then the whole house was filled with God's glory, with his presence, and the people of God were filled with his Holy Spirit. Do you see that there? That which hath been is that which shall be. The Old Testament is a teacher to help us understand the new. One does not discard the other. One simply amplifies the teaching of the other. But let's take it a little bit further. Same book, the seventh chapter, looking now at verse number one. Same book, seventh chapter, verse number one. Notice what the Bible says in verse number one. It says, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord did what, my friends? It filled the house. And watch what the next part says. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. You guys see that there? So Solomon's temple, blessed with God's presence, God's people had entered into this covenant relationship with him. And then I read in Daniel chapter 1, and God gave his children, into the hand of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. What is it that has caused God to respond to his children in this manner? With that, with that in mind, I want to I go a little bit further here. Um, how did it go backwards like that? I don't know. So watch this. Now this is a, a picture of a map. You see that line that I made up here? You see Jerusalem there, and you see Babylon. Now, Babylon is the kingdom that came and took uh, Israel captive. Now, if you were traveling that red line and you were, go to, you were to go that route, it's about almost a thousand mile journey by foot. So, and they stayed around the Fertile Crescent. There's more water up that way. If you went through the desert, it was much quicker to go through the desert to get to where you had to go. But they stayed around where near the water was. So Babylon comes and they take God's people captive. They take them into captivity because God is the one that ordained it. And I just want you to notice that Babylon geographically is the king of the north. They are the northern power that takes and subjugates God's people in bondage. 
The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. I'll show you something else. And again, I will verify this as we, the significance of this as we go along. So another name for Jerusalem is called the Pleasant Land. All right? Or the Glorious Land. I'm going to show you this now. This is another picture. And this is, a, this is a Rome, and this is Jerusalem. This is uh, pagan Rome and Jerusalem. Pagan Rome is the northern power, and Jerusalem, again, is, a, is, a, is in the pleasant land. Now, pagan Rome comes, and if you listen to uh, or read the document history there, at the year A.D. 70, pagan Rome can, comes and takes Jerusalem and destroys it. It leaves no stone left upon another. Both powers come from the north both for Solomon's temple and for Herod's temple. Both powers come outside of what we consider God's people. Okay? I just want you to keep that in mind. We're making observations. Now, I put these verses up here. There's no way possible that I can go over every verse. But I'm, I'm doing this. If you can take, you know, you have your cell phone. Take your, take your cell phones out. That's how you do notes these days. Take your cell phone out. Take a picture. Take it quick. Now, I made this acronym for myself as I was studying because I, I needed to have it locked in my mind. Now, there are parallels between Herod's temple and Solomon's temple. We have the presence of God showing up by fire and by cloud under Solomon's temple. In Herod's temple, in a few moments, we're going to deal with what the presence of God was with Herod's temple. We have God executing judgment against Solomon's temple because they are breaking their covenant relationship with God. They're intermarrying. They're breaking the Sabbath. They're breaking their covenant relationship. God says, okay. And ultimately, if you read Ezekiel 8 and 9, they actually worship the sun. They actually began to worship the literal sun, the sun God. So God sends judgment on them from Babylon. Now, I want to particularly go to Ezekiel for a moment. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11. And mind you, this is not our key study yet. I'm just laying the foundation. So in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel is taken in vision, and literally the Spirit of God grabs him by the lock of his hair, takes him from captivity in Babylon, and takes him back to Jerusalem. And he does this around the year 592, okay? There are 592, because Jerusalem is destroyed in 586. But I want you to read particularly Ezekiel chapter 11, and I want to read verses 13 and on. And if you, got, you guys don't mind reading your Bibles, amen? amen? All right, so let's read our Bibles. Ezekiel 11, we're going to read verse 13 and on. It says, And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, O oh, Lord God, Wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel holy, are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you far from the Lord? Unto us is this land given in possession. So he's saying, this is, this is the land that, that was given to you. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, that means God scattered them, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them, what's it say, my friends? A little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. They therefore say, thus saith the Lord, I will even gather you from the people, 
and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence, and I will give them, what's it say, my friends? One heart, and I will put a, what's it say, my friends? Doesn't that sound like New Covenant conversation? I will give them one heart, and I will give them a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart of their flesh, and I will give them an heart of, what's it say, my friends? A flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. It's almost like he's quoting, or he's, it's almost like when you read Paul in Hebrews chapter 10, it's almost like Paul quotes directly from Ezekiel. Isn't that interesting? And in this passage, just so you can get a little bit of context, God is intentionally bringing the northern power to scatter God's people because they have been disobedient. They have broken their covenant relationship. Sometimes, my friends, and I'm going to say this quietly so you don't think I'm an angry, angry guy. Sometimes God must allow trials to present themselves to us because we weren't listening when he was talking regularly. Does that make sense? Sometimes life must hit us because we've been da di da di da di da And while we're doing that, guys, hold up, wait a minute. Sometimes donkeys have to speak. Right? So in this passage, God is doing, can you imagine now, this is God's chosen people, for God to have to say, I'm going to send a foreign power with swords and take you captive, and you have to march 999 miles to Babylon or through a desert. Do you think that made God happy? No. No, but he knew that it was necessary because the people that had been chosen to be the oracles of God were, had clouded it with a whole bunch of works and not enough spirit. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I hope you hear what I'm saying. Keep reading. It says in verse number 21, but as for them whose hearts walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord. Now watch this. Then did the cherubim lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Now, pause there for a moment. So, so what, what's happening here in this passage is that God says, I'm going to leave you to your abominations and your sins, and I can't live here anymore. This was God's house, and God says, I have to move out. Now, for a, for a moment, just use your imagination if you don't mind. Imagine that there was only one way in, and there was no other way in but through that door. And all these other doors were locked, and what I did was... Through the, lights, through the light ceiling lights, I would drop in some snakes. Anybody want to stay in the room still? No? No? Okay. In addition to me dropping in snakes, I took some type of hose and I started spitting in all sorts of manure and, and, and rats and feces. How many want to stay? Anybody want to stay? No? You want to leave? But this is God's house. Are you following the idea? 
So what's happening is God's house is no longer clean. He's trying his best to get his people to repent and give up their sin, but God's like, I can't, I can't do it no more. This is, I'm going to leave. So he literally, the Bible gives a geographical location. He says, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to go sit on the east mountain. Please don't forget that because we're going to make a parallel in a moment. I'm going to leave in the temple and I'm going to rise up and be on the east mountain. Now let's go back for a moment. Let's go back for a moment. The presence of God is demonstrated by the outpouring of, of fire and by cloud. God has to execute judgment, and the main execution of that judgment is Babylon, the king of the north. He comes and takes God's people captives. God's presence departs, and he goes and sits on the east mountain. Nevertheless, in all of this, God says, look, this is the only way I can get your attention. You've been so hard-headed and so stubborn in your sins, I had to do this. So that's God's last remedy. God's last remedy is I must send judgment in order to get your attention. And then God actually says, I'm going to gather you back. Everybody understand that general concept? Now, mind you, when I normally do this one section right here, I only get to the presence, execution of judgment, and main executioner by going through all those verses. So I normally go through, it takes me a long time. I love details. But now you have the general premise. I want you to go to the book of Haggai. Go to the book of Haggai. And watch this, my friends. Haggai chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading first verse number 9. Watch this now. Haggai chapter 2, and look at verse number 9. It says, the glory of this latter house, that means the second house, shall be greater than the former, that means the first saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Is everybody still with me? Uh, If you're feeling tired, we'll take a two-second break. You can stand up, and normally your blood circulation, if you go like this, if you hold your hands above your head like this, it would actually force, there you go, that's it, there you go. It will force, it will force the blood to push through, okay? You have to stand up and do it, though. Come on now. Come on. All right. There you go. If you're feeling sleepy. All right. Somebody's going to think we're doing some type of Holy Ghost stuff. No. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> all right. We're going to need to use our brains, okay? That's what we're doing. We're using our brains. If you're used to, you know, if you're used to working out, it's not hard to, you know, push. But if this is your first time really getting it in, it's going to be a little difficult, okay? So stay with me. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. I'll read it one more time. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former house. So let's, a good, let's see if, you, if this, that circulation helped you. What, based on first and second temple, what is the former house? You guys are on your bunny. Very good. And what would be the latter house? Harris Temple. Very good. So the, verse 9 again. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, say the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Watch verse 3. Go back to verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? In other words, who was there when Solomon built this beautiful, magnificent building? 
all the gold and all the architecture and all the, the details to, to what, God, what they put in there. Who was there? Who saw that? And watch what he says. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? In other words, if you're looking physically at Solomon's temple, it's more beautiful than Herod's temple. The outer beauty does not compare. It is nothing. That's what, this, that's what the writer says. Well, watch verse 7. I love verse 7. Verse 7 is probably my favorite passage. When, the first time I read verse 7, I said, oh, that's why they named the book Desire of Ages. Look at verse 7. It says, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall, what's it say, my friends? Shall come, and I will fill this house with, with what, my friends? With glory, said the Lord of hosts. Now, understand this. The first temple had fire come down from heaven. The first temple had a cloud of God's presence appear. But then it's saying, but the second one is more glorious because now God's presence is manifested like this. Y'all not hearing nothing I'm saying. Salvation has manifested itself in flesh. God's plan is coming closer and closer to fulfillment. Now, I don't know if you've ever just thought about it. I mean, just without music or people around, just think. Divinity put this on. The Most High put this on. John chapter 1, we're looking at verse 1. You know it already, but I'm just going to read it again. It's one of my favorite passages. We're going to read 1 through 4, and then we're going to read verse 14. Watch what the Bible says. The Bible says, in the beginning was the, what's it say, my friends? Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was, what's it say? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Praise God. Look at verse 14. And the word was made, what's it say? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And what's the glory full of, my friends? So listen to me. There's a, there's a, there's a false teaching now where grace is the only thing that's preached. And there's a false teaching now where truth is the only thing that's preached. You see, if you divide grace from truth, it won't have the same effect. They both must come together. In other words, I'll say it this way, it, that there are some who don't like the teachings of the Bible. They just want to feel the fluffy love of the Bible. Because the teachings of the Bible begin to impact the carnality of what I am. And I'd rather not hear the teaching, but somehow we've divorced the teaching from the teacher. But Jesus is the teacher. And his, his, his teachings are designed to cut us so that the sin in our lives can be thrown away. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because Jesus didn't just die to save you from the penalty of sin. He died to save you from the power of sin as well. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 
Notice this. I'm going to show you something. Hold your hand in John. Go with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, and look at verse number 6. Proverbs 16, and look at verse number 6. Remember, I told you grace and truth must be together. Proverbs 16 and verse 6, the Bible says, By mercy and truth... Iniquity is what, my friends? So if, if, if God is in the process, and remember, Brother Ola was talking, and he was making reference to the, the, the conundrum that God has, because at the end of the day, God wants to save everybody. At the end of the day, he wants to save everybody. The issue is, some of us love sin more than we love our Savior. So what the, father was, what the Father's trying to do, he's trying to figure out, how can I separate sin from my saints. How can I separate sin from the saints? And God has a plan in this regard, my friends. In fact, when I, when I share with you this idea, when, when, when Jesus comes and he manifests himself in human flesh, him doing that was part of the organized plan. In other words, when you see Jesus, he is both, he's not just our substitute, but he's our example. So when, when, sister, when sister, S- sister Jane is there sharing with you all the things that Jesus did, now if you, try, if you look on that list, you would be like, man, that is crazy. I got to get up at this time. I got to eat at this time. I got to get sunlight. I got to think about water. I gotta, your brain's going to be like, yo, that's too much. This, I, I'm out. Right? But what happens is when you set your heart to say, Father, whatever you want in my life for me to do, please give me the strength and the wisdom. And the Father then begins to show you moment by moment, day by day. He he doesn't drop it all on you and say, go. (laughs) That's not not how he does it. He shows it to you. You say, Father, I can't, which is the reality of most of what God asks us to do. We can't. There's nothing in us to do right. There's nothing there. Haven't you tried before? I, I will never do that again. I will never eat that. I will never watch this again. In fact, remember the challenge I gave you last night? How many, of you, how many of you failed already? Remember the challenge? The challenge was only positive thoughts and only positive words. How many failed already? Raise your hand. Yeah, see? <laughs> huh? Moment by moment, my friends, it's a training process. God's Spirit walks with us and talks with us, but he took this on. Now, if I separate grace from truth, it'll be like me seeing a sick dog in the corner and I go, into the, go to the dog and say, hey, dog, you're sick. Drink some water. But the dog can't get up because he's sick. Many of us do that with truth. We're ready, I mean, we're ready to uppercut somebody with some truth, man. Bloody nose and everything. But at the same time, someone's like, oh, the grace of God, the grace of God. Well, that's not going to work either. So grace and truth go together. So I have the truth. The dog is sick. What does the dog need? He needs some medicine. He needs some water. He needs some positive talk. So I go over to the dog with, with that which will help the dog and bring the dog back to life. I can't separate the two. Does that make sense, everybody? They go together. Grace and truth are united. So we see Jesus, and he's taking on human form. He's walking in flesh among us. In fact, you go to Matthew 121 very quickly. Matthew 121, and notice what the Bible says. In Matthew 1 and verse 21, the Bible says, And he and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name, what's his name, my friends? Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. You guys see that there? Right on time. Right on time. Now, there's something else. I'm, we're making an observation. We're watching tonight. Go to Matthew 23. Go to Matthew 23, 33 to 38. Now, I find this passage actually very, very interesting. Because in Matthew 23, 33 to 38, we eavesdrop on Jesus talking. And whenever Jesus is talking, we expect him to be speaking nice words. But this passage is actually quite terse. It says, ye, vi- ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? That's Jesus talking. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar." Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now watch what he says here. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest, what's it say, my friends? The prophets. And what else does it say? Stone is them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Watch the next part. Behold, whose house? Your house. Your house. Well, you know, when Jesus first started out his ministry, he, he went into the temple and the people were doing all sorts of things in the temple. He said, you have taken my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. He was still claiming the house is his. At this point, it's your house. Now listen to me carefully. I cannot in my mind think that we are better than they. When I say they, I'm talking about the Jewish nation. I'm talking about the Jews. I'm talking about these people that have been chosen by God. They've been chosen by God. And here, Jesus is speaking, I sent you prophets. I sent you instruction. I sent you teachers. I cannot think in my mind that we are way more accepting today than they were back in the day. In my mind, we are rebellious people. In my mind, we're a stiff-necked bunch. And because we don't acknowledge the reality of that condition, we don't receive the help that we need. I hope you hear what I'm saying. Because it's not enough to come to services like this. It's not enough to hear preachers. What are we doing 24-7? What are we doing when we're out of this building? What, am I, what is my conversation like? How am, I, how am I processing information in my life with my family? I, I can't imagine that we're more humble than the Jewish nation. And the caution that's here is because once God removes himself from a house, the house comes crumbling down. You see, in Solomon's temple, the presence of God leaves and goes and sits on the east mountain. 
I wonder if that happens here. Go to Matthew 24, same book. We're right there. We're going to read right in the 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, pause, wait a minute, you may miss that. Mount of Olives, if you have a map, Mount of Olives is the East Mountain. Do you see in Matthew 23, when Jesus says, your house is left unto you desolate, Matthew 24 says he walked out of the temple, he goes to Mount of Olives and sits on that mountain east of Jerusalem. Do you know that Jesus never went back into that temple? From that day forward, he never went back into that temple. The nation had rejected the only means of salvation. I just thought, well, that's interesting. Remember, you can't understand the third temple if you don't understand the first and second. There is a pattern. There is a pattern. God works. He says, he says I don't surely, the Lord God does how much? Nothing unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. Amos 3, verse 7. So I'm not going to guess. I'm not going to be, I watched some of these guys on TV and they're like guessing. Or, or trying to fit some event that's happening in our day just, just so they can make it irrelevant. No, we don't need to guess. There are undergirding principles that un- help us understand what is happening in our day. Does that make sense, everybody? All right. So, in this, the presence is a cloud and a fire. Under Herod's temple, it's the presence of Jesus himself in human form. Under the execution of judgment, the reason why they fell under the execution because they rejected the covenant relationship with God. And so it is when the personification of that covenant walks in the midst of the God's people, they reject the covenant. And rejecting the covenant, they are left to their own damnation. Does that make sense? The main executioner is Babylon. They are a northern power. But who is the main executioner for the Jewish nation? I want you to go with me to book, back to the book of Daniel. Back to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9. Now, some of this I'm going to share with you. I am not going to be able to go into detail. I'm going to give it to you, then I'm going to step away from it and come back at another time. In Daniel 8, verse 9, there's a series of imagery that is used. In verse number 9, particularly, it says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Now, if something's waxing south and east, where is it coming from? Northwest. If I go, in fact, let me go back for a moment. I'm going to share, look at this. Look at this picture. See that picture? You see Rome there? Rome is northwest of Jerusalem. And Rome literally comes and surrounds Jerusalem and takes it captive and raises it to the ground. So there's a northern power, just like with Solomon's temple, that comes and takes God's people captive and scatters them. All right, let me come out of that. Let me go back here. Now, I want to get to a particular spot. 
before my time is completely gone. Because I didn't get up exactly at 7. So you guys don't mind we go to midnight? <laughs> All right, just making sure you're listening. See, if you laughed, I know you was listening. If you didn't laugh, you were asleep. <laughs> All right? <laughs> Very good. All right. So let me show you something else here. I want to go to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and let's look at verses 41 to 44. Luke 19, 41 to 44. Notice what the Bible says. And it says, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, and now they are, what's it say, my friends? They're hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Because thou, what's it say, my friends? Knewest not, what's the phrase? The time of their visitation. Now, this is where we're going to get back to Daniel 9. Go back to Daniel 9. You have your paper with you. Let's begin to dissect this guy. All right. I'm going to give you the answers to the test. Okay, here we go. I'm going to give you the answers. Then I'm gonna, You know, in math, it doesn't matter what the answer is, right? In math, what, what matters in math? How you get there. You know, in, in, in my math book, when I got to, I think it was third or fourth grade, I can't remember. I got to third or fourth grade, and I saw the answers in the back of the book. I was like, yes! I was so happy. And then the teacher was like, well, you have to show your work. I'm like, I have to show my work. So I'm going to give you the answers to the math test. All right? You have your paper. I gave it to you already. You should have something that looks like this. Okay? The goal is for us to show our work. Okay? I may not be able to finish this. I'm going to try to go another 15 minutes at best. All right? So everyone should have one of these. This is the answer to the question, to the quiz. This is the answer to the quiz. Now, how do we get there is the next question. Step number one. In Daniel, the book of Daniel, there is a passage that I believe explains all of the whole book. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. This passage here explains the entirety of the book. It says in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that no understanding. He revealeth, what's it say, my friends? The deep and what? The secret things. This is powerful. He revealeth the deep and secret things, 
He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou has made known unto us the king's matter. Now, why do you think, I think, that this is the theme of the entire book of Daniel? Why do you think I think that? What would be the idea there? Say it again, sis. I can't have one of my, my missionaries say the answer. What did you say? Yeah, God reveals his next steps, and he's in charge, right? He puts up kings. He takes them down. Somebody says, some people, some people don't like Donald Trump. There might be some in here that don't like Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. If you like him, it doesn't matter. God put him there. Okay? There's a reason. You may say, well, he's not a, he's not a godly man. You don't think he's a godly man? Neither was Nebuchadnezzar. Are you following the idea? God is in control. He has a plan. So that's, that's the answer to the question. So we need to understand the broader context, and the broader context is God is in control. You're not going to understand the 490-day prophecy. You're not going to understand anything about prophecy in the book of Daniel without understanding this one key principle. God is in control. He sets up kings, and he takes them down. Ultimately, because he is working all things after the counsel of his own will. And what's his will? The salvation of mankind. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Stay with me. So now the next thing I want you to pay attention to is that Daniel has a particular concern. Every prophecy that you, when I'm reading, I'm like, why is Daniel emotional? Because he's, he's emotional. <laughs> if you pay attention to the prophecies, he's feeling emotional. So let me see if you can catch it. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel 7. And again, and on, I believe it's on Sunday, I'll be dealing with Daniel 7 in detail. But for now, we're not going to do it in detail. I'm just going to get to a key point. So there's a vision that he has. He has a vision of a lion. He has a vision of a bear. He has a vision of a leopard. He has a vision of a, a, un, a, 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 a described beast that looks kind of weird, okay? Somebody says nondescript, but it has a description, okay? It's a described beast. And in all of this, Daniel says something that I want you to pay attention to. Um, go with me to verse number 15. Verse 15. It says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. So he's physically disturbed by what he's seeing in vision. Now, a lion with wings would cause me a little bit of concern, okay? <laughs> a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in his mouth would cause me some concern. A leopard that has four heads with four wings, I think, would be a little disturbing. But I want you to see what Daniel is concerned about. Verse 16, it says, I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and watch this, I love, I love how this, this uh, being explains the prophecy. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. So here, the angel is about to explain the whole prophecy. Are you ready? Here's the explanation. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Everybody got that? That's part one. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom, how long? 
forever, even forever. Amen. So that's it. The angels, like, he doesn't go into great detail. He's not like, well, this beast represents this. This beast represents this. He said, no, these, first, these beasts are kingdoms. God wins. And if you're on his side, God wins, and you win too. But that doesn't, doesn't satisfy Daniel. Daniel's like, hold on, man. I, I appreciate you doing all that, but let's look again. Verse 19. Pay attention. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. Did he ask about the first beast? Second beast? Third beast? He's not concerned about those guys. I want to know the truth about the fourth beast. Why are you concerned about the fourth beast? It says, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, and his nails of brass, which devoured, breaking pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and the ten horns that were in his head. And of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn, what's it say, my friends? Made, did what? Made war with the saints, and did what to them? Listen, uh, I don't know if you ever read your Bible before and it's like, stop. <laughs> I'm reading this passage, I was reading it one day, and I just said, Stop. Now I stopped. It says that this horn prevails against the saints. That is, don't we sing songs like, no weapon formed against me. Don't we sing songs like that? There's no temptation such as common to man, but God will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. Don't we read stuff like that? So when I read a passage and it says the saints are prevailed against, this is what bothered Daniel. First beast didn't do this to God's people. Second beast didn't do this to God's people. Third beast didn't do this to God's people. The fourth beast is the beast that's prevailing against God's people. This causes him a problem. Why? Because Daniel is remembering we were led into captivity and we're only supposed to be here 70 years. Time is almost finished. And now I'm getting this vision telling me that there's a power that's going to keep trampling down God's people. This bothers me, he says. It bothered him till his physical frame was disturbed. Are you following me, my friends? Watch. So, verse 28. So there's, watch what it says at the end. At the end of the whole vision, the angel tries to explain stuff, and then he says in verse 28, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations. I love that word. It sounds intelligent, cogitation. It means his thoughts. <laughs> My cogitations must trouble me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter where, my friends? So even when, he's, when the angel was done explaining it to him, his brain is still like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand. We were just, we're just in captivity, and we're about, it sounds like we're about to be in captivity again. I don't like this. It doesn't sound good. His brain is troubled. Next chapter, chapter 8. Again, there's these beasts in this chapter. There's the ram, there's the, the he-goat, and there's the little horn that extends all the way down. And so Daniel's response at the end of the vision, notice what it says, 827. And I, Daniel, fainted. Do you see that? At the end of the vision, my man just falls out, boom. And this is while the angel is explaining, like the angel is talking to him. And while he's talking, Daniel's just like, I can't handle it. I'm out. It's too much. 
But why does Daniel faint? Go back up in Daniel 8. Look at verse number 8. I mean, verse number 13. Watch this now. Daniel 8, 13. Now, my friends, the way I'm teaching this to you, I was never taught this this way. Because at some point there was a prophecy given and they, you know, it's, a, it's like a cookie cutter the way they do, sometimes they do these things. And then I'm like, but I didn't understand why. You understand what I'm saying? Like they'll say, well, this is like this. And I'm like, but why? And I really went to the Lord and said, Father, please help me understand why. It's one thing to somebody say, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Because that's what verse 14 says. But why? Why is it saying that? So let's read 13 and 14. Daniel 8, 13. It says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be, what's it say, my friends? So the sanctuary and the host are going to be trodden underfoot. Now, again, without going into great detail, I have many texts that show you that if you're trod underfoot, that means you're being conquered. That means you're being dominated. So we read in Daniel 7, God's people are being prevailed against. We read in Daniel 8 now that the sanctuary and God's hosts are being trodden upon. This is a cause for concern. Okay? Then it says in verse 14, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand... 300 days, then shall the sanctuary, what's it say, my friends? Be cleansed. In, in other versions, which is actually a little bit more accurate, the, the idea is restoration. Then shall the sanctuary be vindicated, it be restored, be put back in order. But remember, I gave you the extreme illustration so you can just keep the picture in your mind. Doors are locked. Only way in is through this door. I let in lizards, snakes, poop, everything in the room. Do you want to stay? Yes or No. No. So the, the sanctuary is unclean. Where God wants to reside is not a good place to stay. So in order for him to reside, the place must be what? Come on now, you guys. You see, many folks have read this and misunderstood. Now I'm going to share something else with you. And I'm going to share with you on Saturday night, but I'm going to give you a little bit now. There is a reality that in Revelation chapter 13, there's a power that's coming. And the Bible says that all the world wonders after this beast. Not one person resists the power of this beast. Not one. Everybody and their mama. I mean, even if you think you know who it is, it doesn't matter. It's almost like if you step on the court with Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or, or the big time person and you step on the court, who's gonna win? They are, because they're more skilled. I don't know how to run like the pastor here knows how to run, right? He's a, he's a physical specimen. Let's, let's go race. I'm done. A couple steps, I'm out. Because I have not put my energy and I don't have the stamina to run with this. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? The Bible tells us that there's a power, and I'm going to say it right now, present, who we are not going to be able to stand against. So who's able to make war with him? Come on, now say it again. Who's able to make war with him, sis? Jesus. Now, mind you, if Jesus is not in the temple, you have no way to defend yourself. 
You can have intellectual assent to information. You can know I'm supposed to eat this. I'm supposed to go to church on this day. I'm supposed to do. It don't matter what you know. Because if Jesus is not present, you have no strength. Your house is left desolate. Are you hearing what I'm saying, friends? That's why there's such a strong warning for those who have a form of godliness but deny the power. And the power is not just about being this. The power is about fellowship. Are you hearing what I'm saying, friends? It's about fellowship. So Daniel is concerned about this situation that causes his people to be in a condition of bondage. There's one other place. And Daniel actually spells it out clearly. After my man wakes up from his concussion, after he fell, he fainted, he wakes up, and watch Daniel 9. Watch this now. I don't even think we're going to be able to get to the numbers. I gave you the answers, but we're going to have to come back to the numbers later. The, the why is more important than the numbers. In Daniel 9, look at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, listen to this, I love this, I, Daniel, understood by, what's it say? Books. Now, this is powerful. <laughs> is Dan Daniel's a prophet, yes? So if I was a prophet, I'll just read my own books. Daniel's not reading his own books. Daniel is studying the writings of the prophets himself. I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So remember, he's concerned because he's only supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. But he just heard a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 saying he's going to be there 1,260 years and another one saying 2,300 years. He's like, hold up, this doesn't make sense. So I understood by books, verse 3, and I set my face unto the Lord. Now, my friends, again, I have been challenging you like every night. There's been new information I've shared nearly every night. The Holy Spirit has been convicting many of you in your hearts. I know it without question. My concern is like, Instead of studying, like Daniel, the books, and then Daniel goes and prays, we study, we feel good, we have a feeling, but we don't resolve in our hearts to follow what God says to do. We, we can't do that. It's a worthless exercise. You hear the word, receive the word, study, study, praise God, praise God, Father, pray, pray, fast, pray. That's what Daniel does. Lord, teach me. I need to grow. Please. So Daniel's praying, and watch what he prays. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord, my God, I love that, and made my confession, his personal confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. What does he say? We have, what's it say, my friends? Now, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you never read about Daniel sinning. 
You never read about Daniel's family. In fact, it talks about, I forget exactly where it says, but it says the righteousness of Daniel and the righteousness of Job won't keep you in the day of Jacob's trouble. Daniel is considered a perfect man in the Bible. And where's my brother at? Listen to me. Listen to my brother. Sometimes when we see apostasy in a church, what we do is what we want to separate from the church. What Daniel does, he says, we. When Moses sees the rebellion in Israel and God gives him the opportunity to say, look, man, I'll make you a holy nation. Moses is like, no. We. Take me out. The spirit of Christ is upon the one that is willing to die for a rebellious people. To, to endure the reality of a stubborn, listen to me, brothers and sisters. Daniel says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. He includes himself in the, so what we do is, see her, she did that. See girl, that girl ain't know what she doing. And she thinks she all that. That is of the devil. Do you hear what I'm saying? There is an accuser of the brother. His name is the devil and Satan. He's the one that accuses day and night to make sure you don't get in. Because if you get in, he's for sure out. Daniel includes himself. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have done wrong. We, we, we. And if you understand that, then your tears and your prayers will be more earnest because we are on drugs. Because we are homosexuals. Because we are transgender. You know, the Bible says that he, Jesus, became sin for us. We have sinned. I think, you know, at the end of the day, when God's people begin to understand that which burdens the heart of God more, there, will be, there won't be a hard time to say, let's have an all-night prayer meeting. It, it won't be hard. They say, hey, there's a mission project that needs to be supported. It won't be hard for folks to be like, yeah, anything you need, let's, let's go get it done. We don't carry the same burden. For some reason, we think we're better than. We've forgotten that we are saved by his grace only. So Daniel is concerned because he sees that we have done all these things. And then it says, verse 6, neither have we hearkened to the servants, the prophets. We spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth, I love this, righteousness belongeth unto thee. But unto us, confusion of faces as it is this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries, whether thou hast driven them because of their trespass 
that they have trespassed against thee. All right, without me reading and just going, 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 I want you to look at verse 16, and then we'll, I'll apply step number two. Verse 16 says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of, what's it say, my friends? Our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. So Daniel's concern is the sin of God's people that has had God's judgment now come upon them. Broader context, God is in control. Narrowly, Daniel's like, we have sinned, and because we have sinned, all these judgments have come upon us as a people. I'm going to stop here. I have to stop here because I can't go any further. Too many details. I want you to go to sleep on me. I think the point has been made for this evening. And what I'll do is tomorrow morning at 11, we'll continue from here. And what, what I want to make sure that you understand is that these temples are parables, if you will, and instruction for us to understand that there are conditions to how God deals with his people. And that ultimately what God wants to do is remove the sin problem. That's what he wants to do. In everything that we talk about, God wants to remove the sin problem. The thing is, it's, it's in there, man. It's like, it has roots. When you try to pull it out, it feels like it's pulling out everything else. But there's a secret I found. It's kept me sane all these years. Some of you might think I'm sane, but it's kept me sane. It's one of my favorite quotations. It says, as the student of the Bible beholds the Redeemer, there's awakened in the soul the mysterious power of faith, adoration, and love. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed, and the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. My friends, the secret is in the beholding. Did you hear what I said? The secret is figuring out where Jesus is and keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. When you learn to do this, your temper is tamed. Your appetites are controlled. Your passions are subdued. And supernaturally, my friends, Jesus begins to do a work in us which we would never, ever, ever to be able to accomplish ourselves. So tonight, I just want to ask a simple question. How many tonight understood what we talked about? Can I see your hand if you understood? Praise God. My second question is, Are you willing to allow Jesus
to clean you up? No, you're not. Your body is a temple where the Holy Spirit loves to dwell. If you're willing to allow Jesus to clean you from the inside out, why don't you bow with me on our knees together and let's talk to Jesus. You know, the interesting thing that I've learned over the years is that I don't have to go through a list of all the things that are wrong in order for someone to recognize you're wrong. (laughs) The Holy Spirit has already told you what is unclean in your life. And right now, my friends, I'm going to ask that you join me with this prayer. Father, take my heart, for I cannot give it. Keep it, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me from myself, my weak, unchristlike self, and raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of your love truly flow through my soul. Father in heaven, you see us. There is nothing hid from your eyes. Everything about us is known. And Lord, as you are in the process of cleaning, please do not pass us by. Please, Lord, we don't want to be a rebellious house, a stiff-necked people, a people that refuse the warnings of the prophets. We want you to make us clean, Lord. I pray for each one under the sound of my voice, Father. I pray that you send an extra portion of your spirit. And Father, just in case they don't understand I know that when you come, you will convict us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because we have not believed on you as we should, of righteousness because we don't know how to walk in a way that's pleasing in your sight, of judgment for you sit as our judge and our king. Please, Lord, save us We thank you for the grace that you have extended. Increase our faith. Increase our love for you and for each other. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen.